Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition. And this uh, episode is a pausing for breath and a reflective episode. So over the course of the last six months, uh, I've produced 12 episodes uh, where I've interviewed different practitioners, researchers, or those that are interested in the fields of emotion, uh, credibility and deception in the workplace, where we've explored a whole host of uh, of different themes, and I'll, I'll come back to those as we go. On average, though, I've, we've had a podcast that every two weeks, um, and bearing in mind our podcasts are quite long form, so I think the shortest I've managed is a, is a 40-minute one, and the longest, uh, or episode 12, has been an hour of 40, which is, I think, is our longest by far. So we, we've done a lot of stuff, and we've covered a lot of ground, and I guess I wanted to take some time to just pause and reflect on uh, on all of that stuff, on all of those things, all of those episodes, but also um, kind of how the experience has been for me over the course of that period of time as well. So um, also the, the keen-eared listener will know that over the last few episodes, I think I started mentioning it in episode nine, which is the neuroscience one, uh, I've been struggling with some health stuff. Uh, and that's to do with um, an injury I sustained at Christmas last year. Uh, and to fix said injury needs me taking a substantial amount of time off work. So uh, I'm going to be taking a couple of months off and a couple of months away. And I, I worked hard to make sure that while I'm away, the podcast series continues. So um, when you're listening to this, I'll have already been off for a number of weeks um, and I've still got some weeks to go. So what you'll hear over the next, uh, I think, three episodes of the Emotion at Work podcast will be a rebroadcast. So I'm going to rebroadcast some of my favourite episodes that we've covered so far. And I'm going to focus on the earlier editions, the earlier episodes from the podcast, because what I've seen is the amount of people engaging with the podcast has increased massively over the last, say, two months. Over the last eight weeks, I've gone from... Um, I've got well, actually well, I've got I've nearly doubled in the kind of daily downloads of the of the podcast. So I want to make sure that, that the earlier episodes, which have got some absolute corkers in there, that they're getting some some really quality airtime as well. So we're going to rebroadcast some of the original, uh, some of the earlier episodes, um, but also I'm going to add some some reflection from me today. So between when you're listening to this which will be on the 16th of November or there or thereabouts so between now and the end of the year um, we'll be rebroadcasting some of the early episodes and then I'm, I'm hoping to come back in early 2018 and I'll let you know later on in this episode who we've got lined up um, for next year we've got some really really great guests lined up uh, to start us off next year which is really good too um so I was looking back over the the series of podcasts that we've done so far and I just I've loved every second of the conversations that I've had and I think that's part of the reason that I'm still going that I have thoroughly enjoyed and loved actually every podcast interview I've done so far of the learning I've had from the guests that we've got that we've had on from the conversations that have taken place um, and then the impact on my own personal practice has been noticeable um, and I thought it might be helpful to go back and, and look back through that really. So if I take us all the way back to episode two, so even though it's called episode two, this was the first proper episode. So episode one was me sort of setting the context as to why I want to do the podcast. And all of that, all of the reasons I said in that first episode still hold true. But if I think about episode two, this was where I had a long chat with Sarah Jane Lenny. And we talked about her role as a detective inspector at Greater Manchester Police and then the emotion rules that govern 
um, the the regulation and the expression of emotion in that setting in that law enforcement uh, environment and she talks about how the the credible emotion is anger you know so any other emotion isn't credible so fear isn't credible um as an example anger is the is the dominantly credible emotion and, and that got me really thinking about what is the dominant emotion or the dominant credible emotion in other workplaces that i engage with so that could be other workplaces that i engage with as a customer so when I go into stores or when I go into offices or when I go into places, what seems to be like the, the, the dominant, credible way to go about your work? And I find that it really varies. And that there are there are some where it appears to be one thing, but I think it's actually another. Um, and there are things, there are times where it appears to be one thing and it is another. Um, and, and there's one um, workplace in particular where the... The common narrative is is around positivity and about the importance of focusing on the customer and, and the customer experience. But actually what, what I see or what I experience, sorry, I should say, not necessarily just see because it, it comes across in other senses as well. But what I experience is um, a the, the almost relentlessness of that focus creates a environment of of a mixture really of of fear and suppression so because if the the, the I, I pick up lots of signals of, of fear around if the customer isn't having a good experience or if customer has isn't having an amazing experience that i as a, as an individual who might be interacting with that customer is going to be uh, disciplined or um uh, chastised or challenged or told off because of that um, because the customer isn't having that experience and for me I find that a really interesting way that that a um, an organization where it is wholly appropriate and accurate to put the customer at the heart of what they do actually has created a culture of incessant pressure and fear and the my experience of in, in, interacting with the senior leaders within that organization is that they have very little or no awareness that that is the case and i find that really hard um to work with so i find it really hard to work with as um as someone who so this isn't a client of mine this is an organization that i speak, that i know well but isn't a client of mine so i don't have a role in trying to make it better so it's not like they they've brought me in to say phil can you help make this better and i'm finding it really hard to work with as an as a as an individual who kind of knows this stuff because i can see it i can hear it, i can feel it when i'm in the when i'm in the organization but it's not my place to do anything about that and i'm, and I'm really struggling with it because I can see the, the fear and the anxiety and the trepidation that is just prevalent within the people that interact with customers, but I have no role in, in doing anything with or about that. And I find that really hard. And it takes me back to this episode with, with, with SJ Lenny, where we talked about the, 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 the importance of deep acting as the, as a researcher would call it, where people have to suppress the emotions that they're experiencing to such an extent that they then have to create and act in a way that is very different to how they're feeling. 
and then the burnout that 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 goes with that. I mean, I find it exhausting, and I don't even work there. Um, so how it must be for people that work there is just uh, you know amazing, and I really worry about the the kind of future health and well being um, for the people that work in that environment, and and I, and it's got me thinking how do I help and what can I do to help? And I haven't got the answers to those questions yet, but um, yeah, something that, that I'm, that I'm working with. And I, I guess that acting then is a, maybe takes us, well, not maybe takes us, I'm, I'm using it as a segue into episode three. So episode three was the special edition from the CIPD's L&D show uh, that took place in London in May this year. And, and here I, I interviewed Peter Cheese, the chief exec of the CIPD, and had a really interesting kind of three-way conversation with, Barbara Thompson and Joe Cook um, and one of the things that sort of still sticks with me from this interaction uh, is the conversation with Joe and Barbara where we talked about the, the different personas that people may have so we talked about the different personas that people can have online I remember Barbara talking about but so Barbara on Twitter is at Carib Thompson and I remember her talking about how she has different social media channels for like different versions of her so she has different versions of, of Barbara that she puts out to the world in different ways across different social media channels. Um, and, and I remember being fascinated with this at the time, but I guess my interest in it has gone even further now where I'm starting to think even more about what different social media channels do I use for what purpose? So interestingly, as an example, um, the, this podcast is the only channel on which I've spoken about my health stuff in a public way. So I haven't put anything on Facebook, I haven't put anything on Twitter, I haven't put anything on, on Instagram about it. Um, and, and it's interesting that I reflect on, well, why is that then? Um, and I think it's because of the personal kind of connection that I have with with both you as my listeners and my audience, but also with, with the guests that I get on the podcast as well. So because it is a, a, a more personal interaction and a more depth of, of detail of conversation that I'm having with with these individuals. Um, and, and I don't think it's strategic, but it might be. Um, that kind of sharing of more personal information, especially at the start of the podcast, which is where I tend to do it. Um, I wonder if I'm doing that at some level to, um, to get more sharing back from the person that I'm interacting with. So... I don't like kind of glossing over the how are you question. So if you've listened to a number of the episodes, you'll, you'll know that, you know, I talk about the how are you question as a uh, as a social lubricant. Um, and Jessica Robles in episode uh, 10, I think, talked about Harvey Sachs' work in terms of the paper Everybody Must Lie in, in response to the how are you question. And I don't like doing that. So when somebody asks me at the start of the podcast, how are you doing? Well, I then uh, I'll share... You know, not, I don't want to share everything because even in this episode, I haven't told you what's really going on and what's wrong. I've just told you that I'm unwell. Um, but I find it interesting when I reflect on why have I chosen this uh, media to share that information, whereas where I've not shared it elsewhere. So um, that yeah, that interplay of what what parts of or what aspects of myself do I share across different social media platforms and channels, and why. Um, is is a really interesting one for me to think about, and I've been more discerning with what I share, where I share it, and how I share it. Um, I've been much more thoughtful about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, and where all that sort of stuff is coming from. 
um, as a result of the conversation that that Barbara and Barbara Joe and I had at um, at the L and D show in May. That brings us on to episode four, um, where I had the wonderful opportunity to chat with Ben Fletcher. So he's at Arrowmaker seventy six on Twitter, um, and. Uh, we talked about the role of purpose and meaning in the workplace. Uh, and I, I'll be honest, I can talk to Ben forever, really. I'd love to hear him talk about his passion for purpose and his drive for wanting people to have genuine meaning in their work. Um, and, and I'm incredibly proud of the work that, that we did at Boots Opticians together. Uh, and I've taken that on both in my personal life in terms of my own personal purpose um, but I've also taken that on to to really start to play with this notion of purpose with other clients as well, um, both from on an individual perspective and um, at an organisational level as well. So helping individuals think about their personal purpose and and what does um, you know what do they stand for and what are their values, what are their beliefs, and, and those sorts of things. And I find it a, a, a hugely rewarding thing to do. And I'm yet to have somebody tell me that it's not that it's a process that they see little value in. So whether that be, so I'm working with a group of of individuals at the moment on a talent program, and we we've spent kind of over social tools, so using Slack as a channel. Um, we've already started the discussion about. Um, oh, actually, no, that's a lie. We started it in a face to face discussion, and then we've continued it over Slack, um, exploring. You know what what is someone's purpose? Why you know what is their why? What's their, their reason for being? I'm also uh, sort of, well, not sort of, I am two-thirds of the way through Grit, which is a book by Angela Duckworth, um, where she talks about the importance of, of passion and perseverance. And, and playing with all of those notions, I find a hugely rewarding thing, both for me personally, but also for working with, with other people on. Um, and it's often taking individuals into a way of thinking that they've not experienced before. Um, and, and I really enjoy that. And... And I enjoy seeing other people grappling with what are tricky and difficult and challenging questions. But once grappled with, you know, what individuals share is the hugely beneficial results of, of grappling with those things. So it's very much a thing that I want to continue and build on. So then we go on to episode five, where uh, I talked with a friend of mine, Georgie Nightingale, and um Again, the keen listener or the, the long-time listener will know that her practice of, of changing up conversation by asking different questions and, and moving on from the transactional, so what do you do question um, has been hugely beneficial. Um, and, and again, what I've started to do is to take some of the questions that she shared with me both in that podcast and afterwards and take them out to use in, in bigger, broader life. So I'm really enjoying changing up the types of interactions that I have with people in coffee shops. I know that that's something that Georgie talks about as well, but just changing that, that interaction from, you know, can I have a, a white tea and this sandwich please, or, or a white tea and a porridge with honey and banana please. Um, and just changing up that transactional ritual conversation to be something different. And I'm finding I get a lot more richness and joy from my day. I get to know people a little bit better. I get to build a, a more interesting kind of connection and discussion um, with other people. And, and I find it really, really enjoyable. And so taking those questions both into my personal life and into my professional life, I find to be really, really 
um, useful. So I hope the questions that, that you that she shared both in that um, uh, in that podcast and also that I've used since, I hope they're helpful for you. Then we go to episode six, so we went in, in quite a different direction. So we, this was our first kind of foray down the uh, the deception and forensics route, where Dr. Sam Lana um, from Manchester Met Uni came along and talked to us about um, foren- forensic linguistics and how forensic linguistics can help us in, in what we do. And the bit that really stuck for me in that is the use of formulaic language. So Sam introduced us to this term formulaic language where we look at language from a chunks point of view. So rather than thinking about creating individual words, we combine words together to create chunks of, of words. And where I get really interested then is listening for that formulaic language with the clients that I interact with. And what are the phrases or the sayings that that appear to be formulaic? So what are the sort of stock phrases? But then I've taken it on a level to go, well, what does that mean then? Or what does that, what, not, not, that's not true actually, it's not what does that mean, is what does that tell me or what can that tell me about this organisation? So if, uh, so if I think about one of my clients that I'm working with at the moment, um, they say the customer is everything. Uh, and that's a, that's a formulaic phrase that gets um, trotted out on a regular basis. So in meetings, in discussions, you'll hear, or I will hear, not you will, because you can't, you're not in the meetings, but I will hear um, the phrase, the customer is everything. Um, and I find that fascinating because there, whilst there are other values within that organisation that talks about colleagues and employees, that, that those other values don't get, those other formulaic phrases that are there within the organisation don't get talked about anywhere near as much as the customer is everything. So that tells me where the focus really is. So even though there are other values that talk about colleagues and employees, actually the way that those formulaic phrases are used and the frequency at which they're used indicates to me that the customer is paramount in everything that that organisation does. Now for me, that's not a bad thing. That's that's just a thing. Um, and what that also tells me though was it gives me it gives me potential indicators of where I need to frame my work. So the work that I'm doing with that client, how I need to frame it so it's going to have the most resonance with um, with the client. But also, um, it tells me where the focus and the attention is um, within the organisation. So the focus and the attention will be on the appears as though it will be on the customer over the colleague or the employee. Um, so and, and it's something that I'm I'm continuing to observe to see well how does that play out then in um, uh, in in interaction but also in performance and in the way that performance is managed and communicated. So that's one one I'm continuing to watch that was triggered by Sam. And and I'm linking that into episode seven then where we talk where I talked with. Um, Kirsha Denegara and Claire Genkai Breeze. We talked about a few things. We talked about vulnerability. We talked about um, uh, being flawed but willing. But one of the bits that I guess really stuck out for me was this idea of a near enemy. So when I then think back to my previous example of the, the customer is everything, what's the near enemy of that? So the near enemy of that for me is we become blind to everything else. So it's all very well having a focus on the customer. But the near enemy of that is becoming blind to anything else. So we then become blind to other issues or, or other people or other situations or other things that aren't the customer. And if we become blind to that, what does that mean about the way that we interact with other people? So 
for me, the, the really interesting things about how does the formulaic language and what could that indicate for me about the culture? And then what's a near enemy of that? Because having a, a really strong customer focus is a, can be a massively beneficial thing for an organization. At the same time, the near enemy of that is we ignore everything else at the expense of the customer. Um, and that for me is an interesting kind of quandary to, to go into. Episode eight was um, was about listener questions. So I had questions from um, a few different people, from Annette, from Ross, from Annette Hill, Ross Garner, Patrick Malarkey, and Sarah Taylor. Um, and this Sarah Taylor's one that sticks out with me, and she's one of the guests that we've got to come uh, in the future. And I've been pondering a lot on the balance between self acceptance and self improvement. Was her question, and I gave my response at the time, but it's something that I've continued to think about in terms of accepting myself and and what I am who I am what I do how I do it and how does that because I, I have a, a real strong reflective practice aspect to me so I don't journal in, in a traditional sense I audio journal I do audio recordings of my reflections and I listen back to them and that gives me cues and clues around sort of self-improvement things that I want to do but I also know that I can be really harsh on myself I can be really hard on myself in terms of things that I've done, ways that I've done it, how I've gone about it, things that I've achieved or succeeded or, or not at. Um, and and I'm wondering at what point do I need to just accept myself as I am um, and, and to what extent do I need to continue to improve? And it's an ongoing thing that I'm grappling with. So one of the, one of the things that I've decided to accept is that I, I ask lots of questions and can I ask better questions and episode 11 of the podcast was about clean language and that got me interested in, in a different type of questions and questions to ask um, but I'm I'm accepting that my ability to craft a question is already high and sometimes that question may or may not need crafting and my awareness of when it does and doesn't need crafting is high. So I'm okay with that as an area that I've been practicing and working on a lot over a number of years and I'm going to accept that that's okay now. And there are other things that I want to continue to work on. Um, so yeah, it's been a really interesting one to decide what am I going to accept that I'm good at. So do I think I'm the best questioner in the world ever? No. Do I think there are still things that I could learn about questioning? Yes. But do I, is that something that I want to continue to actively pursue at this moment in time? No. Will I come back to it later in the future? Maybe. I don't know. Um, but for now, I'm accepting that, that that's, that is where it is. Episode nine then was emotional work in neuroscience um, where I had a really fab chat with Matt Wall um, where we talked about myths, misconceptions and issues of methodology when it comes to neuroscience. And the thing that really sticks with me from Matt's, um, or the thing that continues to stick with me from the discussion with Matt is, does it matter if people don't know, and I say people, does it matter if the wider population don't know what's happening in the brain when something happens? So we were talking about happiness and the different chemical releases that go with that. Um does it matter if people don't know that and they just know that you know, we, so we can ask people if they're happy does it matter if we if we know or measure what's happening within them when they do it if they report that they're happy and 
part of me says yes and part of me says no. Because people lie. So somebody might self-report as being happy, but there could be different contextual and societal pressures that, that are influencing that self-reporting as happy. So would it be beneficial to quantify or, or qualify that with other data and other stimulus? You know what? Maybe it would. But is it worth it? Is the bit like it coming back to? So whilst it may be worth, maybe whilst it may be useful and interesting to get that wider data to challenge or support it, does it matter? So when people walk out of a shop where they've got, or through an airport where they've got those rating things where you have to hit a face that is like angry, sad, okay, a bit happy, really big, wide smiling emoji. Are the airports also, or the stores also reviewing the CCTV footage to find out if there were genuine smiles depicted during the course of that um, visit to the store that supports or reinforces the, the rating that they gave as they left? Or do they just take the rating as it is, accepting the fact that children will press in, will press buttons that don't necessarily correlate, that teenagers might go in and, and press you know, the sad button loads and loads and loads of times because it's funny, that they just accept that those things will happen um, and they've got ways and means of aggregating it without getting all the um, other stuff that sits behind it. So it's an ongoing one, I think, for, for me to work and debate with because my my initial thinking is it doesn't we don't need to know what's going it's, it's in, it might be interesting for me as a emotion credibility and deception practitioner and researcher so it might be really useful for me to know what's going on behind the scenes but does everybody else need to know that and I guess that's the that's the challenge and it's a challenge for me in, in the design work that I do for the for the learning that I organize both digitally and face to face so I can analyse interaction down to the a really specific turn-taking aspect. But does everybody else need to know that level or that depth of knowledge? Or can they just ask me to come in and help them where they need to? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one to, to think about. Thinking about interaction then, that takes us on to episode 10 where I talked with um, Dr Jessica Robles um, about emotion at work and everyday talk. And... I loved this conversation. It was great fun talking about the different things that happen in interaction and the way that the individuals speak um, with each other. Um, and the one thing that I've been thinking about more and more was something we talked about right at the end of the podcast, which was about um, children and crying. So nothing really to do with my work at all, at least not directly. Um, thinking about do children leave gaps in speech for um for ad- like, sorry, do children leave gaps in crying for adults to or, or carers to come in and um, and support them? And I've been looking at it in in my four year old because he's the one that, that cries the most, um, and he definitely does. But I think a lot of his crying is strategic crying as opposed to genuine. You know, so when he's, I'm more interested in in when he's injured himself and those cries than I am with you know his his cries of disappointment that he's not getting sweets today or, or something equivalent to that um and and what i'm noticing in those cries where he has injured himself is initially there will be a a, a number of kind of wails while he's busy assessing the wound that he's got on his knee or his arm or wherever it might be um but then he will leave spaces for me to kind of come in and interject so i'm really looking forward to seeing how her research progresses Episode 11 then uh, was about clean language. 
Um, and I, I'm clean out because this is quite recent for me. So this was uh, this recording was in October. We're now mid November. So there's more work for me to do in, in reading around the questions that she talked about. Um, sorry, my guest Judy Rees, I say she. So the questions that Judy talked about from David Graves' work, um, where his studies began. Uh, so I need to do more reading around it. And the bit that still sticks with me from this episode is the the pressure I felt in the in the initial kind of stages to do something in response to the questions that were being asked. I was being asked to, I felt like I was being asked to orientate something somewhere. I really didn't want to do it. Um, and I had a conversation on Twitter with somebody afterwards where we were pondering. Uh, where, so I pushed back and refused to answer the question and I refused to situate something physically. You know, My physiology refused to situate it. And we were discussing around, is that something that others would do? Or would they, would they accept? Or would that, would that pressure of wanting to answer the question be too much? And they would give a response that might not necessarily be accurate or true. Um, they're just giving a response uh, because of that. And, and it's got me thinking of then about the types of questions that I ask in, in the coaching sessions and in the consultation work that I do. Um, how much pressure am I putting on those people that I'm asking questions of in the interactions that I have and to what extent are they then complying because they feel they need to comply as opposed to giving a genuine um, response and there was a there was a, a facilitation event I was doing recently where I had five questions that sort of um, built their way up in um, in degrees of personalness I guess so question one was when I you'll have heard me use before what have you craved this week um and then that worked all the way up to question five where I stole a bit of um a bit of world blue um language and said what would you do with your career if you weren't afraid um and bearing in mind all of these people worked in the same organization nobody had in their response to that question nobody had working in that organization as part of it anymore so all of them had left the organization they were currently working in and gone on to do something different um and my reflections afterwards were on the question so the question of what would you do with your career if you weren't afraid so part of it is to do with the meaning that we take so we talked about meaning before in terms of how um people can interpret things and people can interpret to one question or one statement or one action in two very different ways so was that interpreted as a as a complete freedom question if I was able to do anything you know with money no with money no object and time no object and no other practical reality issues in the way what would I do I would do this and we had some real amazing responses um but was it a stretch too far I guess is my is is my thought is my question was it a um, was it a step too far so it is in, in terms of was it too abstract so was the response were the responses genuine that these are things that people actually really seriously want to do or was this pipe dream type stuff um, so one for me to think about in terms of where where do I go with it, with that or a similar question in the future and then finally episode twelve talking with Professor Dawn Archer, um, which, you know, the longest podcast to date, hour and 40 minutes, was just a joy to behold. And there's so much in there that um, I, I have and will continue to 
um, to reflect on. But it was only recorded recently. It was only recorded about a week or so ago from where I am now. So I haven't done lots of processing with it. So I'm gonna I'm going to leave episode twelve there and one I'll, I'll come back to uh, at a future date or time. And then when I pause and think, if I do the meta thing, because I get I tend to do meta stuff as as you will know by now. Um, there's a lot in there's a lot of my own personal reflections in that just across those twelve episodes or eleven episodes that have come so far. So I hope you've had similar um, occasions to reflect, and that it's given you the the content that you've heard as we worked our way through the last six months have give, have also given you calls for for calls for thought and opportunities to pause and reflect. So. I hope me sharing some of my reflections has been uh, both helpful and useful for you as well. I, I want to do like a pause and a movie edit into still to come on the Emotion at Work podcast. Um, so uh, guests lined up then. So I mentioned one earlier, Sarah Taylor. Um, we've got an interview lined up with her. Also Professor Carrie Cooper, who's the president of the CIPD. Uh, he and I are talking about mental health. Um, also talking to uh, an emotion and memory researcher we're trying to get a date in the diary lined up so we can talk about the role between emotion and memory and learning um, because I, I think there are, there are interesting distinctions to, to give so some really interesting and exciting guests still to come so to, to pull this episode together then I just want to say thanks for listening thank you for if you'll subscribe on iTunes or Podbean or uh, Overcast or um, wherever you get your podcast from thank you so much for listening to the Emotion at Work podcast uh, I thoroughly enjoy producing these podcasts and they're, uh, they're just hugely beneficial for me to do if you have time and the inclination I would love you to give me a review on iTunes if you're an Apple um, subscriber or review me wherever you get your podcast from um, I'd be very grateful and it's always good to hear what you guys think of the content that we're putting out there on Back to the Big Wide World so thanks for listening. Enjoy the rebroadcast that come over the next few weeks. And uh, unless you hear from me before, have a wonderful Christmas, have a fantastic new year, and I will see you for the next new episodes in 2018. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast. Written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox. Edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at, at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.